Imagining Tomorrow with Emma Newman, created in partnership with Friends of the Earth. Episode 3 Warming, Decarbonizing, Celebrating. Imagine you've heard that the local abandoned shopping centre is being redeveloped and you've got a space on a tour to see what they're doing. You've been joined by an elderly woman who used to be the mayor back in the 2010s and she's paused outside one of the former shop units to watch three potters at their wheels. So you've let a bunch of hippies come in and start some sort of collective, have you? It's a bit more than that, the tour guide says. It's actually... So there's nothing for kids, then? They used to like coming shopping on a Saturday. The guide smiles patiently. Let me show you what we're doing round the corner. Who's paying for all of this? The former mayor asks. Taxpayers? Haven't they got enough? This time, the guide interrupts her. It had a few small grants to get it off the ground a loan from an ethical bank to get the solar panels, the batteries and the infrared heaters installed, and a lot of crowdfunding. The community are completely behind this, and the local artists and craftspeople who sell here donate a portion of their income to the fund too. We think it will be self-sustaining once we get a few more things in place and the solar extended. Selling the excess will bring in a fair amount of money over the summer months. All of the labour is donated – People have wanted to make things better for a long time. We just got organised. You're both led around the corner, the tap of her walking stick now competing with the low rumble of music. Now you can see the space that used to be a department store. The ground floor has been set aside for any young people who want to use it. There's the first youth club in the town for over 20 years in the back corner. They took the portion with the old cafe. The elderly woman gawps at the sight of three teenagers carrying in a stack of scaffolding boards, laughing as the smallest one in the front trips over his own feet. Who? Who's in charge? There's a bunch of volunteers who help, but the kids lead it. They're making it into what they need. We've seen a massive drop in antisocial behaviour and requests for acute mental health interventions. Over on the left-hand side, where the shoes and menswear concessions used to be, there's a theatre space now, and there's set building at the moment, so it's a bit noisy today. She rests a hand on his arm. Before I was the mayor, I did the lighting for the amateur dramatics group. You know, before the hall was knocked down. I can't do the rigging anymore, but do you think they might want someone to help with the design? Let me introduce you to Finn. Then I'll take you over to the church. That's where they're rehearsing, between services. Rehearsing in the church? Theatre in an old department store? It's all upside down now. Perhaps we had it all upside down before, you say, and the guide shares a smile with you. That's just a snippet of a fictional future inspired by the following conversations with people who are doing amazing things right now to combat or in some cases reverse environmental damage to create a better future for everyone. Join me as I explore their work and communities and imagine a tomorrow that is building hope in a changing climate instead of despair. The wife of a friend of mine is a vicar And in a recent conversation, he talked about her schedule over the Christmas period, one of the busiest times of year for their faith. It brought back memories of the times I've been in churches over the years, which, considering I'm not a person of faith, is still a remarkable amount. Weddings, christenings, funerals, concerts. So many have taken place in buildings built hundreds of years ago. There are three things that come to mind when I think of those locations. Beautiful architecture, uncomfortable pews, and above all else, being cold. I remember the ancient Victorian heating system in a chapel that my primary school used for choir concerts. There were huge iron radiators that would be burning hot to the touch, and yet the air was freezing cold less than a metre away. 
everyone just used to wear coats and be uncomfortable, which was fine, unless you were in the school choir. Regardless of which faith a large building has been created for, heating such large spaces in the winter without it costing a fortune has always been a challenge. Thanks to the recent increases in energy prices, it can be impossible. I assumed that up and down the country, everyone gathered together in these spaces, be they mosques, churches, synagogues, temples or gurdwaras, all would be doomed to discomfort and soaring bills. That was until I came across the Footsteps Group in Birmingham and their 4F project. My name is Fakir Emud Gayoum. Um, I'm a community connector uh, with Footsteps. Uh, Footsteps is an interfaith um, environmental arm of Birmingham Council of Faiths. I think Project 4F is one of our most successful projects. It came about more than over a year ago now um, with the cost of living crisis. Uh, there was this massive need in, in the community for kind of faith-led guidance on support, mainly on energy kind of assessments or just how, how do you kind of engage with the community. Alongside giving advice and support to households in Birmingham, Project 4F mapped out the locations of over 800 faith buildings and organisations in Birmingham and combined that data with information on how local faith communities are involved with activities such as food banks and places of warm welcome. You can explore this map on the Footsteps website, and you'll be able to find the link to it in the show notes at www.foe.uk forward slash imagining tomorrow. Footsteps then used this map in their engagement with communities on fuel poverty, and also their faith-building energy assessment work. I asked Tokia about the latter. I think it was looking at heat loss um, and also looking at opportunities for insulation or whatever was required. So the wonderful thing working with Eco Birmingham, which is a charity in Northfield, which were part of the project, and Phil Bedmore was the fact that a comprehensive report was able to be produced which outlined the different costs the different kind of options which were available depending on how members of the congregation or, or community groups use a faith building. So, for, for example, Al-Hijra Mosque, which is in Small Heath, is, is a massive, massive space. So they've got different buildings. So they've got, um, they've got buildings for education. They've got community hall. And sometimes the advice could be as simple as um, actually having uh, using technology so, um, or having zonal. So depending on where you are, uh, having heating control systems that would actually manage and control. So the key important thing is that it's knowledge place of worship wouldn't otherwise have had. And then they, they can use that. Project 4F enabled energy assessments for 12 places of worship, which gave recommendations for energy saving measures. As a result of that work, 6.6 tonnes of carbon are being saved each year just from those 12 places alone. And of course, the energy-saving measures employed to achieve that reduce the amount of money that needs to be spent on heating, meaning more funds can be diverted to community projects. And to come back to your point about the, the 6.6 tonnes of emissions, I think, I think it's amazing for us as a small group you know, we are a group of volunteers. I don't know whether you know this, but uh, we there's probably less than half a dozen of us uh, active. We have been able to bring in people who, from different faiths, together, but generally who are who care, and that's the key. I asked Tokia what the team learned during this project that could help others who want to do something similar where they live. Knowing who the person with the responsibility is, is key. So one of the things that we found out from our journey is that initially we didn't always know who the key person was. So a lot of places of worship do have websites, especially those who are active in the community, that those that provide services, but not all are. So you, we would have an email address or telephone number, but not all of them would have that position of power, the decision makers. So that's what we learned. It's important to find out who the person you're speaking to, what their role is within within the church or within the mosque. 
Also, how important it is to educate the the whole uh, cabinet or the whole the groups of people, uh, and that takes time. So, even in a climate emergency, sometimes I think we could rush into something. You know, we want everything now, but I think in terms of doing it right, I think we have to. You know, patience is a is a faith quality about really, really deep listening. He also made a really good point about making the need to take action much more relatable to people who may not have considered it. Climate change is, can can seem so distant, um, and it, it doesn't seem relatable to the everyday person. So I think if we can bring it down to where people are in terms of their lived experiences. For example, uh, faith based worship are going to be really cold places, you know, where there's activity taking place, whether it's a uh, uh, welcome spaces, uh, whether it's a community cafe or women's group or whatever's happening there, people are using it. And while people are there, you want people to be comfortable and not to experience cold and also the huge amounts of the, the resources um you know the funds which can then as i mentioned earlier could then be used for other purposes so i think uh, what we've been able to do is continue the communications takir is also an active member of the local birmingham friends of the earth group if you'd like to find out where your local group is, go to www.foe.uk forward slash community hyphen group. Any energy saving measure, such as insulation and improving heating systems through efficiency or better use through zoning, costs money. Project 4F, thanks to the excellent work of the Footsteps Group, had secured funding to carry out this initial assessment work and then just over £2,000 of small grants were awarded to places of worship to help implement the recommendations provided by the reports. I asked what kind of help is available to people who want to carry out assessments and do the recommended work. We are looking at grants so that we can continue to do further building energy assessments. So I would say, you know, get in contact with Footsteps a link to the website is in the show notes. Uh, you can go on our website, um, click on um, you know Project 4F. Uh, you can see case studies on there, email us. And what we do is that we'll have an initial meeting where we can actually find out a bit about your needs, about you know your motives and, and what help and support you need. Uh, and then we can, based on our, our success and the way we work uh, has been really successful, uh, we will do what we can to help and support you. And... What we're particularly looking for is that we're particularly looking for those faith-based worship on there where there's the greatest need. What's fantastic about what the Church of England are doing is that they've got the, the 2030 um, net zero goal uh, and they're really pushing on. And so they have got a lot of their own resources, but a lot of the kind of minority faiths, for example, like mosques, like Gurdwaras and, and Buddhist temples on there, perhaps may not have those financial might in terms of resources. So we really like to hear from those faith-based worship on there who are from the social, economic, challenging kind of communities on there to come forward. And uh, so I would, I'll say as a community connector from Footsteps, as a Muslim greeting, peace to you all. And definitely please come and email us. And if you are interested, you know, get in contact with us. Uh, with our uh, networks and connections with the Birmingham City Council and the West Midland Combined Authority, what we can then do is uh, we can then uh, be, be the be the connector and find grants and support uh, that is available for faith based worship and then kind of connect them with that. Uh, I think that's a wonderful thing being part of Footsteps, the Birmingham Council of Faith on there is that it gives us a, a, a voice at the stakeholders across the city so we can then you know when we engage when we when we meet lots of different uh, kind of uh, stakeholders like the business community like you know we can we, we know who to connect people with the right people with so that's what i say is you know i think the first step is is to get is to do the building energy assessments and to have the report um, and then uh, footsteps can support you in looking for grants that answer demonstrated not only the generosity of the people involved in this project, but also the power of people coming together for a common goal. You know, there's things that we don't have control over, but there are so many things that we do have control over. 
So I say to your audience members and people who are listening is, is actually look at, look at your passions, look at things that actually motivate you and everyone can make a difference. But if you have something that you love and something that you're really passionate about, that in itself endures you. It, it really helps you push through challenges and difficult time. And you don't have to do this on your own. Um, and having people to talk to or talking to others, friends, and there's so many kind of groups out there where people can connect. It could be a faith, but it could be a community group. You know, you don't have to do this on your own. So I think that's a wonderful thing about Footsteps is that we are doing this together. The Footsteps group formed after a multi-faith walk of witness in Birmingham after the 2015 Paris Agreement. I asked Tokir about that and how his faith intersects with climate action. A walk of witness is a coming together of, of all the different faith leaders, people from different faiths, uh, of no faiths as well. This is all about bringing people together. It was a recognition of our shared values and our duty of care uh, to planet Earth. And with, with the Paris Agreement, I think it was in the minds of so many, so many of us, and especially the, the faith leaders of, of Birmingham. And uh, there was a sense of kind of a moral duty to act uh, on climate. Um, so yeah, they think they all they all came together. They walked to outside the council house, and there was a letter that was signed by the different faith leaders uh, from the Birmingham uh, faith uh, leaders group. And um, it was the beginning of a blossom of uh, where footsteps um, kind of came to be. You know, there's a verse in the Quran where God says, I've created the world in balance, so keep it in balance. You know, don't transgress, don't, don't violate the kind of the boundaries of, of, of nature. You know, I think having a faith which, you know, which actually explains to me my purpose, explains to me my, my duty, my role, responsibility. I think that's a really powerful in the sense that it kind of is as a driving factor, you know, especially when, when times are tough. You know, I can say, well, there's a there's a God out there who's in control of everything, but you know, I shouldn't worry about things I don't have control over. Uh, what my Lord expects of me is uh, what contribution, what positive contribution am I making to the world, and that's what I feel like for me. Uh, what my faith uh, does for me. What I find so fascinating and beautiful about the work that Footsteps is doing is the fact that a group of people from multiple faiths are working together to help their communities as a whole. In the face of a climate crisis that is impacting everybody, regardless of their faith, it makes far more sense to me than a lot of other things, to be honest. By the way, if you've been enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. After speaking to Takia, I found myself thinking about all those churches I'd shivered in over the years. I found myself looking at the faith buildings in my local area with a renewed curiosity, and noticed how many of them are used for community activities that are not faith-based at all, such as playgroups, food banks, locations for charity coffee mornings, and more. So, being the giant nerd that I am, I went hunting for more information and discovered a fascinating research project called Empowering Design Practices, which ran from 2014 to 2020. To quote from their website, the aim of this project was to explore how community-led design can help empower those who look after historic places of worship to create more open, vibrant and sustainable places that respect and enhance the heritage of their buildings. There's a link to the website in the show notes, which contains all sorts of interesting information, including resources for communities that emerged from the project to help you to look at how your community can be engaged with expanding the role of these buildings. There's even an open university course developed by some of the people involved in this project, such as The Glass House, a charity that specialises in community-led design which has been made to help anyone who wants to facilitate community engagement in using historic faith buildings. Again, a link to that is in the show notes. From that, I discovered that there are approximately 14,500 places of worship in the UK alone. One of those, 
Bow Church in East London, was part of the Empowering Design Practices project, and even though the church was already hosting a food bank and concerts, the project facilitated also using it for salsa and karate classes, and also for hosting arts and crafts sessions for families. While the blog post I read about this, written by Katerina Alexiou, and, again, linked to in the show notes, acknowledges the limitations of using the church for community activities, such as a lack of parking and also the fact that many people find it very difficult to enter faith-based spaces due to a wide variety of reasons, it still gave me a great deal of hope for finding another solution to a problem that I mentioned in episode two, namely the lack of third spaces that are neither home nor work and don't require a lot of money to access that we need for a healthy society. But, of course, for large buildings to fulfil a variety of functions in society, especially in the winter, it comes back to how to make that space comfortable for people without bankrupting the place through huge energy bills and, ideally, finding a solution that reduces harm to the environment, namely the release of CO2 into the atmosphere. So I went hunting for a solution that could do that, and found something that even though I didn't know it at the time, turned out to have a direct connection to something Tokia mentioned, namely the Church of England's 2030 Net Zero Goal. It's all to do with infrared heating. This has been modernised for the domestic setting by a company called Herschel Infrared, based near Bristol in the UK, which has also developed a far-infrared heater called the Halo, specifically for use in churches. I asked Matt Dodds from Herschel Infrared to explain how infrared heating differs from other forms. Principal differences with most other forms of electric heating, they are aiming to heat the air volumes of spaces, uh, which are then expected to try and heat the fabric of the property. Uh, With our heaters, we're converting electricity into radiant heat, which is directly heating mass and objects in the space. Uh, Domestically, that would include the floors and the walls and your ceiling. In heritage and uh, warehouse style buildings, we're looking more about cones of heat produced from our heaters to directly heat people. It's similar to the sun and what that's producing in terms of the direct feeling of radiant heat from that and an open fire. And then we're able to feel that direct feeling of heat, even with temperatures around us being slightly cooler. I actually visited their showroom, as it's not too far from where I live, and I stood in front of one of the domestic heating panels they produce. Honestly, it felt like standing in front of an open fire, or that feeling of being by a window on a sunny winter's day, when the air itself is colder, but you feel soothed and warmed by the sun. And this is the the difference. Traditional heating has been used to heat the building, not the people. That's Paul Morey, the CEO and founder of Herschel Infrared. So if you remember those old um, Victorian cast iron type, you'd have a big boiler system going, either oil boiler or gas, and the heat coming out of those, what they call radiators, aren't really radiators, they're mostly convectors. So most of the heat coming off that is heat in the air, and it just rises to the very high ceiling. Not where you want it, and it takes days and days sometimes to, um, to achieve any form of comfortable heat, and, and sometimes just not possible. Last year, uh, a church architect actually who was working for the Church of England knocked on our door and said, I've got this idea, I don't know if you guys are the right people, but could you combine a heater that we could s- suspend and integrate with lighting? So uh, we had been thinking about this for some time and he kind of prompted us to, to actually do something about it. So we came up with the idea, he had some sketches of a chandelier type heater that could replace the lighting in churches and then heat the congregation, um, which is really important because you need to heat the people in churches, not necessarily the church itself or the building. So the combination of the drive really from the church to say, can you guys produce something for us, just kicked us into action on it. Um, And off the back of that, we've actually built a factory here in Bristol um, to make the halo. They're being assembled here. And right now, as we speak, I think we've got two going off to Belgium, one to Germany, uh, Matt's working on projects in Australia, yeah. um, 
USA. So it's not just a UK product, um, but it was all invented and started right here. And um, we're very proud of it because it's, um, it's just a fantastic concept and product. The Halo heater looks like a modern, stylized version of a medieval chandelier, and it can be suspended from the very high ceilings often found in churches. There's a church in Somerset where we've put one of our heaters into their lady chapel and they're about to look at more for the rest of it. But the comment that came back from them was that it looks like the heater has been in place for a huge number of years, <laughs> long periods. It's providing great output, but aesthetically it fits in so well. And, and that was, again, a major hurdle that we had to get over with some of the, the groups that are giving permissions to put these heaters mm. in. But it isn't just the aesthetics that make this a great solution. It's the different approach to heating. In church environments, we're looking at positioning heaters where people need to feel the benefit to get that direct feeling and mounting them above them to create the bubbles and feeling a warmth around them. The bubbles of warmth that he's describing can be seen as a diagram in the video that is linked from the show notes. It's this, in particular, that excites me about far-infrared heating. You don't have to try to heat the air, which in a large room, and in particular a large stone building, costs an absolute fortune. The comparison, I was on a call earlier in the week, where people are looking at the whole running costs for a full volume of space in a church or heritage environment, and the cost of electricity against gas. And the thing, the key point you've got to get across is that the way we're heating these spaces is different. We're not looking at full volumetric heating of an air volume for significant periods. We're giving you benefit from a lower height, lower down, where you need it. It applies equally to, um, we've got lots of church halls in this country, public spaces. Um, so, I mean, it could be a lecture theatre or anything like that, where you've got a large volume. And traditionally, I think the approach has been to heat the building and to try and heat the entire volume of the building. This is about heating the people in the building and when they're there. And it's um, it's a significant mindset change that we need to go through, I think, in terms of how we're going to um, reduce energy use going forward. Halo heaters were installed as part of a trial in St Matthew's Church, Bristol. So they tend to put them on probably half an hour before the service on full, but we have three power levels. So as the, the sort of bubble of heat warms up, you can reduce the, the, the energy and the running costs and the temperature, so it's just comfortable. So I think they tend to turn them on to one third by the time they get to the end of the service, which keeps people comfortably warm without wasting energy. So, yeah. yeah. And it, with the controls we offer, you can actually, if you've got a decent Wi-Fi connection, do that away from the building as well as at the building, which means you haven't got wardens going out at 11 or midnight, the night before a service at 10 a.m. to put an older style heating system on. So... The other point on St Matthew's in terms of the, the cost there, the way they were running those heaters and what was independently assessed by a company on behalf of the Church of England was to see a 50% reduction in bills um, for that environment and an 85% reduction in consumption. So what that translated to in terms of cost per service, their gas system on average, speaking to the Treasurer, was around £150 when they take into account the preheating time. And we were looking around £10 for our heaters in the same space. Given the fact we can preheat 30 to 45 minutes in advance of a service at full power and then take the power levels down, which assists again in terms of overall cost. There was also some unexpected feedback from the people at St Matthews. I think one of the surprising things, the feedback from St Matthews was um, the way people are drawn to the heaters I think, I think. Yeah. so they're saying I think previously people would sit at the back of the church and sort of be dotted around all over the place and um, we only on the trial put four heaters in it needs uh, they're going ahead now with the second phase I think to do the whole church but um, for that period last winter everyone gathered around under under the heaters and it made the, the vicar very happy I think that yeah the congregation much closer to him so in terms of the environmental impact As more than 50% of electricity production in the UK is now low carbon, using that is much cleaner than gas. And it will get better as that proportion of renewable energy production goes up. Obviously, as with all solutions, there is maintenance to consider. I asked Paul about that. We've we've made them to be very long life. 
they can be easily repaired. So if you took the halo, for example, there is one thing in there that will eventually fail, which is the heating element itself. There's, there's um, 12 in a halo. They'll do something like 10,000 hours, but it's a really simple process. Just It's not much difference changing a light bulb to be able to replace that. It's not a high cost part. So there's no reason why our heater shouldn't be in situ for many, many years. And we've reduced down any plastic parts as much as we can. Of course, the aesthetics can be adapted to fit buildings used by different faiths. And apparently they're very close to their first design for a mosque. So if you're responsible for heating in a mosque or a gudwara or any other faith space, do get in touch and talk to them about your needs, as that's how the design for the halo came about. The impact of being able to afford to heat the people using these spaces was something that Matt raised. So from a heritage perspective, that certain church environments have not been able to use spaces in winter because of how low temperatures are getting. So it, it's bringing buildings back into use, and that's important as they receive funding from local authorities for community facilities, and that's becoming more of a feature. So it's, it's not just faith use, it's multi-use for the community, and it's giving them the opportunity to, to use spaces, but also break down which heaters are on in certain spaces at certain times for different activities. And the same applies for heritage buildings and churches. Just focus the heaters being on where you need it, where the majority of the congregation are, for certain periods of the week. And that is a key part of it and benefit that they've seen, certainly at St Matthew's. This brings us full circle to the impact of having third spaces in our communities. This came up in a conversation I had with Una McCormack, best-selling author and fellow Star Trek fan. Once we'd got a little bit of excitement about our shared love for utopian visions of the future out of the way, I raised the point that if I want to go somewhere warm that is out of the house and doesn't require me to pay any money to have the right to spend time there, the options are limited now. Libraries, one of the most sacred spaces to me, have been closed in many towns, and it seems we have to regularly campaign to keep the ones left. And while I adore them, and the space they often provide for toddler groups and children, they are not the right space to go if you want to just spend time with friends and chat and laugh. Shopping centres are noisy and a bit of a sensory nightmare for lots of people. I include myself amongst them. When it's cold and pouring with rain and you don't have much money, where can you go? If you want to run community events on a shoestring budget, where can you find affordable spaces? If you feel uncomfortable in faith-based spaces, where can you just be? What it got me thinking about was... How few places in a city now you could kind of go and say, uh, how do we open this up to as many people as possible? That a, a church or a mosque or a, a faith space, you might open up and, and it could act as a community centre. There are very, very few other spaces. I was thinking, what are the the big cavernous spaces in, in cities and towns these days? And it was hard, actually, to think of them. I think the closest I've got, I had, I had the good fortune to go to Berlin earlier in the year and um, I made a I made a commitment a few years ago to travel by train to Europe. So I had a lovely trip to Berlin and then you arrive at the redesigned Hauptbahnhof, which um, opened in about 2006 and it's, it's an incredible building. It's on three levels. So you've got kind of two levels of trains and then you've got three levels of sort of use, people passing through. And almost all of that space is commercial. And you think, well, first of all, this must have been silent during COVID, just complete this huge space. And secondly, you think, would you design a space like that now? Would you design a project this big, this central to a city, a huge international city, and go, and all of this space in this is going to be shops. <laughs> it's like, well, you could, you could, you could just do shops, or you could think of something else. And that, I think, was my, as I arrived at that station, I thought, imagine 
what else we could have done with this space and what else could have been brought to the heart of a city that people could have used without feeling the need to spend and and almost in a way that project on a fundamental level was was misconceived not the space or the desire to integrate public transport or all these things and berlin is great for kind of public transport but the whole there was a kind of failure of imagination of how that great cavern that great cathedral could have been used and i've been thinking about it ever since so when this project when this kind of came in front of me i thought well imagine if we could take these shopping centers heat them cheaply and use some of that saving to open up these spaces in some way and that's what really really inspired me or or really made me think about this technology we agreed that what it comes down to in this bizarre commercialized life we live in towns and cities is that financing large public spaces has been propped up by commercialism. It used to be that huge buildings to house shops were constructed specifically to make people drive there and shop. Spaces like the one Una described, centered around transportation hubs, have incorporated shop space to gain income from commercial rents, to cover costs and also make a tidy profit over the long term. But things have changed. Over the past couple of years, so many shopping centers have struggled to keep all of their commercial units filled. The impact of COVID, of the cost of living crisis, and the unavoidable fact that many people have shifted to buying things online has created so many huge spaces that were once dedicated to shopping that are now just lying empty. Whether they are huge edge of town malls, or large department stores in the centres of towns and cities. We have a big shopping centre here in Cambridge that, that's closing down. Uh, so it opened in the It's a bit of a disgrace, actually. They, they ploughed down a load of beautiful Victorian buildings, a whole district of kind of Victorian cottages, little terraces that they, they knocked down. Terrible housing shortage in Cambridge. And they, they stuck up this big um, shopping centre. And it, in the 80s, it, and it, you know, it had a little heyday, but it's it's always been in a kind of decline mode since I was here. And COVID finished for it. You know, it was, it was, the, it was where Debenhams was. It was where... Um, uh, that kind of big department store that people just don't go to anymore, you know. They so with this huge cavernous space now, just emptied. I will say, when I went in for the first time after COVID, it was the cleanest I'd ever seen it. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of went, well, this is actually a great space, you know. So um, they don't do a little ping pong parlor, which was free to use. They just put some ping pong tables in, and I thought, well, that's brilliant. That's that's you know stopping a bunch of fourteen year olds from sitting outside in the cold, drinking Alco Pops. They can be inside drinking Alco Pops, you know, but at least, they're in, at least they're warm, you know, or they perhaps they're discouraged from bringing in the alcohol from, um, you know, into the building. So there was something to do, yep. And then other little spaces opened up. There was a big public art, um, you know, one of these wild art trails that they have uh, in towns every so often. There was enough space when that had finished to bring them all in and if you'd miss them, you could just wander around. And out. So it was like a little impromptu gallery opened. And if we we took all those 80 shopping malls, there's like a little gallery of um, local artist collectives. You've got the, uh, you know, the potters have got their space. I'm, honestly, I'm such an old hippie. Such a... <laughs> I've read too much Le Guin. Yeah, you know, or, you know, um, so, or... or uh, the, the local school kids were able to come in and, and see the local pottery collective at work and this kind of thing. Or, you know, we had a, we had a little petting zoo at one end or something. I, I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of things we could do. A few allotments at the back. Everybody wants an allotment in Cambridge. There's no... Uh, the waiting list is like five years. Instead, we've got an empty Debenhams. It's like having a park for the winter, yeah? In the winter, you'd go to the park. But you can't, you know... And then maybe in the summer, I was thinking, okay, well, these these are technologies that are warming spaces. In the summer, increasingly, particularly in a, uh, in Cambridge, there's a few days in the year now where you just can't go outside during the day. We're hitting forty. Okay, so maybe there's a space where you could go to that's cool, but you're not stuck at home. You are able to go out and see people and go, oh, terribly hot today, isn't it? And this kind of thing. 
And then it doesn't have to be kids. It can be, you know, it, it can be adolescents. It can be older people who know that there's a space to go that's safe, that there are things to do. Just because you're sitting somewhere, you don't feel obliged to buy a cake. Yeah. And we don't we don't seem to have those anymore. And I wish we did. I wish we had that too. So what is the barrier? No prizes for guessing. It's money, isn't it? And until we have an economic system that no longer prioritises profit for shareholders above all other considerations, we're not going to be able to solve the problem of being able to fund something for the well-being of the many rather than the wealth of the few. This is where hope is really tested, in the face of an economic machine that does not care about the environment or the people. In my discussion with Una, we shared our despair and our fear, and talked about the need for a fundamental shift away from the pernicious economic policies that have starved society of the wealth required to make things better for all, towards an approach that is built upon generosity. A generosity that is fundamentally at odds with the majority of businesses and increasingly government-contracted service providers. But then I remember people like Takia and the Footsteps Group, people like Andrea and Kath from Reading Food for Families and Cobra Collective, who I spoke to in episode two, people like Daniel from the Kum Aryan Renewable Energy Community Group, who managed to find a way to build a £1.3 million turbine, who I spoke to in episode one. And the innovators, like the Green Skies team and Herschel Infrared, who are bringing solutions to market that are helping people to decarbonise heating. This podcast is all about looking at what people are already doing and imagining a future in which the work of these pioneering community groups and businesses has been replicated on a large scale. So let's imagine if the work carried out by the Footsteps Group was replicated across the country. If 6.6 tonnes of carbon can be saved, thanks to improving insulation and heating in 12 faith buildings in Birmingham, how many could be saved across the 14,500 faith buildings across the country? Of course, Every building is different. But let's say the same can be achieved just for a bit of fun. That would save almost 8,000 tonnes of carbon a year. Even if it was only half of that in reality, it would be amazing. And what if, as a result of those efforts, more faith groups could afford to do more in their communities? What if local secular groups could hire spaces for more community activities, especially in the winter, particularly in small towns and villages where there are no spaces like that available? And what if those efforts spread? What if schools were able to do the same? Universities? Council buildings? What if putting solar panels on the roofs of all council and community-owned buildings and being able to generate money just like the village that author Anne Charnock told us about in episode one, not only brought more money into local communities, but also started to shift the way people and buildings interact with the environment. What if we started to capture the water that falls on our roofs as well as the sunlight? Una mentioned Janine Benius and her idea of biomimicry that encourages us to see the buildings and cities we live in differently. And she kind of came up with this idea of um, what she calls generous cities, right? So these are cities that instead of being constantly a kind of drain on resources, whether that's the local aquifer or, you know, uh, pumping rubbish into the water or generating pollution, they're cities that are consciously designed to work with the natural world that they're operating in. So you might have buildings that worked to reduce carbon or that treat their own wastewater or that, you know, um, you've got pavements that absorb stormwater and all these sorts of things. And it's a beautiful visionary idea. Yeah. But the problem was that when people were, uh, these ideas were brought to organisations, say a business was, was about to have a new head office, 
they would be presented with these ideas and they would go, well, why, why would, why would we do that? Right. Okay. I mean, ultimately the answer is because it's a nice thing to do for other people. And they were like, well, I can't see the, can't see the shareholder interest in that. Yeah. And, and so that the big leap was in persuading people that generosity is a smart move. You have to sort of, you just have to keep chipping away at that. It's very hard to claw that back once you've commercialized things. Not that it's philanthropy, which is, is kind of corrosive in its own way, but that generosity is a sort of mode of being in the world that, you know, is good for us all. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be competitive all the time. Yeah. You don't have to be chasing uh, shareholder value. There are other ways that you could build or design. So I loved this idea of, of things that stimulate generosity. And I thought that that was perhaps what lay behind the decision to implement these um, the, these kinds of heating devices. We could just not bother, you know. We could we could turn on the old clanking Victorian boiler, or we could we could consciously and mindfully look at this building and find a technology that I mean the reductions in carbon that they were reporting were incredible, and presumably that means their electricity bill goes down. So you know, <laughs> kind of kind of win all round in a way. I think that generosity springs more easily from a place of safety. And that sense of safety can be found and strengthened by getting to know the people in our community. Whether that's the street we live on, or the local community gardening group, or work colleagues, whatever. And that brings me back to something Takia said when I asked him what advice he would have for anyone who wants to start their own multi-faith group to take action against the climate crisis. And what I would say to to people is is actually start with where you are. Look at the people around you. If you if you go to university, look at your friends. You know where they're from, whether whether you are working and your staff and the multi faith. You know take an interest. Mosques uh, every year have open days. You know, as a Muslim, for those that haven't been to a mosque before, um, you know, let me welcome you and invite you to to attend a mosque at an open day, wherever you are across the country. Uh, you know, for all your viewers uh, who are listening today, during Interfaith Week in November, there's lots of uh, open, you know, my mosque, which a lot of uh, mosques open their doors, and um, you 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 definitely be welcome. You got nothing to be nothing to be fearful fearful about. I think not only is it's great, you know, great insight. It's a great day out for the family. Uh, great food as well but start with just making uh, getting to know each other as people first rather than going into sometimes we can focus on the climate change straight straight away but we have to remember that we all you know people come from different experiences and different knowledge about you know about about the understanding about the world around them so to start just you know make friends that's what i say if you want to simply meet more people in your community and you're not sure where to start you could get in touch with your local Friends of the Earth group. I'll pop a link in the show notes to help you find them. Just starting conversations can lead to wonderful things. I asked Takia what he felt most proud of, and I felt his response was one of the most heartwarming and hope-filled things I've ever heard. I think being the face of footsteps in the community as a community connector and being the, being the person that his job is to go and meet and bring people together. I think, you know, I would use the word proud. I would say I'm humbled to be given that uh, opportunity by Footsteps. And I want to thank Footsteps. I want to thank, you know, um, uh, Chris Martin, who's the chair. He's also a member of the Quakers and works tirelessly. And there's so many amazing people behind the scenes that probably, you know, we wouldn't hear of. Um, so we're a family that are very supportive of each other. But... To, to see people, um, you know, resonate with me, it feel, it, it makes me, it's amazing feeling that when I know that the effort which I put in to, to try to support different faiths, not only to come together, but for example, we talked about the building energy assessment work. Uh, I think for me, definitely to, to see some of the work which I've been doing coming, come to life and actually changes happen that are somehow, I've somehow, you know, made a small contribution in bringing about positive environmental social change um, in Birmingham, and that can perhaps inspire people across the country. Um, it's a it's a really fantastic feeling. 
And if despair about all of the problems we face as a society begins to creep back in, I invite you to think about something that Una said that helped me. I think there's tremendous creativity. And I, I think a real sort of focusing of what the problems are and a desire to do something about them. That's my positivity. We're living in interesting times, sadly. But, um, you know, perhaps what comes out the other end is going to be something different and imaginative and thoughtful and considered. So um, that would be my sort of um, glimmer of hope, I think. (laughs) If there's anything that I hope this episode has inspired you to do, it's to have a conversation with someone you might not know very well yet. Because who knows? You might be as lucky as I have been and meet someone like Takia or Kath or Andrea or Daniel. There are probably people like them in your community already doing wonderful things, finding ways to combat the climate crisis with each other's support, with determination and with hope. And they would love to meet you. Please do subscribe if you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have a moment to leave a review, to tell a friend about it, or mention it on social media, that would be wonderful. You've just listened to an episode of Imagining Tomorrow, brought to you in partnership with Friends of the Earth. It was researched, written and produced by Emma Newman. To find out more about Emma's work, go to www.enewman.co.uk. If you'd like to find out more about how Friends of the Earth can help you and your local community to take action on a wide variety of issues, and maybe make some friends in the process, then go to foe.uk forward slash community hyphen group. Details about the people featured in this episode can be found in the show notes at foe.uk forward slash imagining tomorrow, along with some resources you might find helpful. Have you got a similar story of hope and innovation to share? Have you been inspired by this episode? Tell me about it. You can email me at podcast at enewman.co.uk. Before I go, here's something to fuel your imagination. Matt Dodds from Herschel Infrared said this when I asked him about a change he'd like to see. Getting full audits and assessments of the whole UK housing stock to see exactly where we should be focusing and and a very clear route then to show what the options are to get you there quickly to decarbonise your heating. If this was rolled out across the country, how could that change lives? I hope that you're inspired to imagine a better tomorrow.